Hi, welcome back to Hope, the podcast for surviving the loss of suicide. I'm Sherry Lynn. I'm John. And we're just going to give you a little overview of what we are going to be covering today in our very first full episode of Hope. Uh, we're going to talk about the people that, that we lost in our lives and, and then how that will flow into how our lives changed because of it. Two different people, uh, two different dynamics, but at the end of it, it's, it's how much our lives changed because of it and you're not alone, not understanding what's going on right now. Great. So John, I'm going to start with you first. Do you want to talk about and give us some insight on your loss of your son? Okay. Um, my wife, we lost our son just over three years ago. He, uh, he was 24 years old. As a young child, he had uh, a little bit of uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Nothing, uh, nothing out of the, how can I say, it wasn't severe, but it was there, and, and we managed it quite well. Zach wasn't my biological son. He was in, we were in our each other's lives at a very early age. Uh, he was an amazing young man. He was a, a compassionate, empathetic, caring, adventurous, uh, witty. You know, it was, it was what everybody wanted in, in a son. But as, as time went on, there was there was things that were coming out that, I'd say it's always 2020, you know, armchair, Monday morning armchair quarterbacking is, is, is easy. We look back now and could have we have done differently things differently? Should have we have been more attentive? It's always easy looking back to say maybe yes, maybe no. These are the questions that are going to go through. But at the end of it all, you know, there was a lot of self-medicating um, in regards to his demons that he was dealing with. We started with simple things. One tattoo, two tattoos, three tattoos, pretty much his entire body covered in tattoos. One piercing to a bigger piercing to a bigger spacer, all to, I don't know if it was to feel more alive or scare away the demons. There was just this perpetual energy of trying. So at the very end, there was one we did, uh, to get himself cleaned up. We did 30 days of, of home rehab. Uh, he was by my side 24 7. He, did, he didn't leave, he didn't go anywhere. He went to groups, he went to therapy at different uh, locations here where we live. And uh, the evening, the evening that he was going to move out into sober living after 30 days of being sober and, and doing counseling and being sent to school and everything was looking just perfect. It looked like he had turned a corner that we we're gonna we we're gonna make headway against all this. Um, that evening had some problems, some roadblocks, some speed bumps that were just too much for him to overcome. And uh, the early morning of November 7th, we had Brenda's knock on the door and uh, to notify us that he had taken his life. And that was the day that the book of our life closed. And we opened up a new one with no table of contents, no prologue, no roadmap, no how to start a completely different life that nobody knew. And that's pretty much a Coleslow's version of, of our story. And I'm sure through these different topics, we'll be going back and how things affected us in, in a different way. And I'm just going to hand it over now to Sherilyn to talk about her journey. All right. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so when I was 19, you know, I was really close with my dad. We didn't live together. My parents separated when I was little. 
Um, but we were close, like probably closer than most fathers and daughters. And we, you know, used to go for coffee all the time together and hang out. And we had really open and honest conversations with each other. And, and I knew that he was definitely struggling with his, his mental health. But 17 years ago was 2001. People didn't talk about mental health. And especially if you're a man, don't you dare talk about it because that means you're weak. And that means that, you know, this big, huge six foot, 220 pound man that shows that you're not strong, even though physically you're strong, uh, emotionally, you're not strong. So how dare you do that? Him and I had ridiculously open conversations around his mental health. And I, I told him, you know, dad, I'm really scared that I'm going to come to your house one day and I'm going to find you. And that was our last conversation that we had. We went out for father's day dinners, the two of us. And I said, you don't scared to find you dad. And he said, don't worry, honey. You know, if I do that, I'll leave a map. And, you know, I talk about this pretty candidly in, in some of my public speaking that, you know, I was so relieved thinking, man, I'm never going to find my dad's dead body. Wow, what a relief. Because in my heart, I had no idea how to stop this. I talked to other adults. I talked to, to other people that were older than me. They were in their 40s. They were in their 50s. And I asked them, what do I do? I, I think he's going to kill himself. could be tomorrow. could be a year from now. But in my heart, I feel like this is going to happen. Yet nobody had the answers for me. Nobody knew, you know, how can we save this man? There was just not the education around there there wasn't the openness to have these conversations or the know-how to go and get information on how to help somebody who's 42 years old and and is depressed and on the verge of you know taking his life nobody knew how to help me so five days later the police found a map in his house where he could be found and you know people talk a lot about how suicide in society oh it's so selfish and i think you know my dad was ridiculously thoughtful he knew for me in our relationship, he knew I was scared. He knew I didn't want to find him. So he ensured that my fears were going to be at rest. And he made sure that I wouldn't find him because I would come to his house at the last minute. And the police found him out and they found where he was. And June 24th, 2001 is the day my entire life changed. They say my entire life came to a crashing halt. Life as I knew it was over. And a new part of me began and you know it wasn't a nice part in the beginning and it wasn't easy and and trying to be 19 and navigate through losing you know your parent through suicide thinking you're at this brink of a this part of your life that you need guidance and he was my go-to person he was my person and thinking I didn't have him to go to for advice or hey dad how do I do this and dad you fix everything dad can you fix this for me well I didn't have that anymore the person that I went to for you know 80% of what I I wanted or questions or anything like that was gone. So living life without him was kind of felt like losing an arm, but my right arm, because that's the one I use all day, every day. And, and his loss dramatically changed who I am as a person and and made me a, a different person. And then the second half of my story is I recently in October lost my sister to mental illness and she didn't take her life, but it's really genetic in my family, the mental health. And my grandfather killed himself when I was in grade nine and I didn't really know him. He lived really far away, but I saw the effect that that had on my dad and then my dad took his life. And then my sister was diagnosed with bipolar disorder shortly after our dad passed away and she turned to self-medicating, didn't want to talk about her feelings. And instead of talking and going to therapy and getting help, she drank her feelings. She, you know, at the end she was injecting herself with heroin 
and she turned any help away. She just couldn't, she couldn't wait for the resources to help her. It was too long. The wait to get into programs when she was ready to go get help was too long. It was three months. And by then the cravings were so intense that she eventually left and, and lived on the streets. And in October 6th of 2018, she died of pneumonia in a homeless shelter where four days before she was in the hospital for being in a psychosis, but nobody checked her lungs. Nobody checked the rest of her. They only wanted to check to make sure she wasn't in a psychosis anymore. And, and, you know, in my heart of hearts, I knew she was already dealing with some lung illness that somebody would have heard that she felt like garbage. And it just took, you know, two minutes for somebody to listen to her chest to realize. So eventually, or evidently her mental health, you know, did cause her to die from her mental illness because she wasn't taking care of herself and taking care of her body. And I know that's not suicide, but it's just showing that, one loss, you know, of our dad, how that had a ripple effect on, on her and, and how that caused severe mental health problems in her too. So it wasn't, it wasn't suicide, but I'll tell you, I was definitely prepared for that phone call that it was, it was suicide. And that was my initial response when, when the police called and, and let our family know about her. So what, you know, that's enough about our story. We don't want to get too, too into detail, but we want you to know where we're coming from, a little bit about who we are, and and to let you know this is something that we talk about quite often. We work in a peer support group helping other people, so so we're here to let you know that uh, this is something that we do. This is our passion. This is what we want in life is to help other people, um, and hopefully that, you know, our loss isn't for nothing. It's, we're going to make something bigger and better out of, you know, something that was a complete tragedy in our lives and we wanted something good to come from it. And this is it. Our podcast of hope is to help spread love to people who are going through the same thing as us. You just, uh, just try to remember that, that what you're feeling is other people that have dealt with suicide are also feeling. Yeah, you're not alone. There, there are going to be different feelings that you're not used to or, or it's nothing like having lost somebody you know, previously to, like I said, to old age or an illness or something like that. This is completely different, and it's and it's very, very confusing, and it's complicated, and it has so many different layers. And you won't you won't believe how many people this will ultimately affect. It's difficult. The journey is not easy, but it's doable. It it, it really is. It, it, it's doable, and nobody can do it for you. You have to do it on your own. But there's a lot of support out there that will stand by you, hold you up, walk you by your, with your hand in hand to, to get you through it. But it is it is doable. I hope we can help you do it. I hope so, too. I think we can. You know, when we do our survivor groups, something we notice is the first week when people walk in is just like their energy and what their face looks like. And, it, and it's just you could just see the pure sadness and tragedy on their face and having our eight week sessions that we do together with people who've lost their loved ones. You can see their demeanor change by week six, week seven, and, and just having that opportunity to share their story. That's something I recommend for everybody to find somebody that you love and you trust a really good friend, a therapist, somebody that you can talk to and tell your story about your loss unconditionally without feeling judged. And that's a really big piece of the puzzle too, is finding that person that you can talk to and tell your story. And it's not easy to tell your story, but every time you tell your story, it's like a bandaid 
being ripped off. And every time you tell your story, the band-aid doesn't hurt so much every time you rip it off, but it is beneficial if you can do it. And sometimes you can only tell a small bit of your story. And sometimes you might feel comfortable with somebody and you can tell your whole story. And sometimes it just depends on how you feel in that day and in that moment. And that's okay. Because this journey is about you. It's not about your friend who lost somebody to suicide. It's about you and everybody's grief looks different. Everybody's grief has a different timeline and that's okay. You got to remember that. I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, my dad died a year ago. So that means I should be better now. Right? Nobody told me, Hey, at a year, there's no timeline on grief. There isn't, it can take, well, it's going to take a lifetime, but it's not going to always hurt the same way that it hurts today. No, it won't. And, uh, and again, follow up with Sherry, Sherry Lynn's thing. There is no, you're going to go see doctors and therapists and whatnot. And some of them will pull out these fancy charts of timelines of, oh, it's been four weeks. It's been eight weeks. It's been a year. It's been, no, there's, this does not follow a timeline. You're healing, you're, you're, you're healing the initial, the wound, the, the, the pain, the, the sharpness of it. This is all, it's on its own timeline and nobody can rush you through it and nobody has the right to say to you, well, it's been, you know, it's been six months, you know, you, you should be getting over it. Get out of bed. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's not, that's not what we're here to do. And that's not what we will allow to be done because that, that does not work. That causes more suffering and, and more pain than it does any good. You will have to, you will make your own roadmap to getting better. And that's the sad reality. There's nothing to follow here. It's just understanding what's going on. Right. And that's the big thing. And setting your own personal goals to when working through your grief and remembering that, you know, what John's grief looked like and his journey looks very different than what mine looked like. And that's okay because we're all different people and we have all different personalities and different strengths and that's got to be okay. And just to understand that. Yep. Some, Sorry, go ahead, John. Something we also wanted to get into and talk about is, you know, before we lost our loved one to suicide, John and I, what do we actually think about suicide before this dramatically affected our lives? You know, what was our perception on suicide before this happened? Do you have any insights on oh, it and what, what your thoughts were? I, it's, it's embarrassing. I would have to say that I'm embarrassed at what I thought about suicide compared to having to live with it now, to live with the outcome of suicide directly affecting our family. It's shameful. You know, I was, I'll admit that I, it was the, due to my profession, I, you know, I've, I've had to de deal with suicide in the public sector. And it was always that, wow, how, how selfish of that individual, you know, look at the devastation that they left behind their family, you know, a husband, a wife, your, your children, uh, your mother, your father. And I have to, I have to apologize because after, after what happened to me, who was I to say, or who was I to judge how selfish of an act that was? I was not and am not at a point where that action, that final outcome is the best outcome I could pick. How bad does it have to be that Taking one's own life is the best option to get back. Mm -hmm. So I've had to learn very quickly. I've had to understand very quickly. And, and speaking with others that are way further on in their journey, like Sherry Lynn, 
Uh, we have another a very, very close friend who lost her husband, you know, 15 years into it. Us, we're, you know, we're 38 months into it. So, and then the people that are coming up behind us now that are fresh into this. It's a constant learning experience. And they're at the point where they just don't know how to navigate it, right? They they don't even know which end is up. Still in a right cloud. Now. Still in a cloud. It's, it's disbelief. It's confusion. It's a lot of guilt, a lot of regret, anger, anger. There, there's a, there's a, an enormous amount of different feelings that go on through this. But what I know now compared to what I know, what I did know before, I really, I didn't know much about anything before. So this was a, a horrible way to be educated. You know, we're learning through the school of hard knocks and this. But I don't think that I don't think studying it beforehand would have given me given me the insight that I have now, or the understanding that I have. Now. I have a lot to learn. It'll it'll be a never-ending learning experience because it, it it just continually it continually goes on. So, like I said, I, I I apologize for anything that I've ever said in the past or thought in the past, especially to my son. But did I ever think he was selfish in doing what he did? I'm gonna have to say no. I, I don't think he was selfish because he he gave up the ultimate peace. You know, he gave up his life. So the least I can do is try to understand the best I can. Thanks for sharing that, John. When I thought before, I was 19, so I didn't have great world views on suicide. I also didn't encounter them in my job because I was a teenager and nobody in my school died by suicide. So I, there was, besides my grandfather, who I didn't know, I didn't understand it. All I saw was the ripple effect it had on my dad. And even, you know, I had empathy towards my dad and I felt so bad for him knowing, you know, he was the one who went to his dad's apartment and cleaned up, you know, the aftermath of what that looked like. But I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the feelings, but I just thought, how crazy does somebody have to be to kill themselves? Like, you have to be over the top crazy to kill yourself. What is wrong with somebody? And, and that's all I thought because I didn't understand and I didn't get how somebody could do that because as a person who's, you know, the only depression I've had in my 37 years is situational. Something very traumatic happens, you know, a couple times in my life. And I, I feel like I was depressed for a little bit, but very momentarily, it's something that I could work through with, you know, without, you know, just with talk therapy, I didn't understand what it meant like to be clinically depressed. And I remember my dad left me a letter and I only have ever read it twice because I, because I chose to, the first time I read it, I saw a very different thing than when the second time, the first time I read it was not long after his death. I got it back from the police officers and it, I saw him saying, I'm selfish. I'm a jerk. I couldn't do this. So now I'm leaving you with all this crap to deal with. And at 19, I was his executor of his will. I owned the house that you know he lived in and he had tenants so I was a landlord at 19 and then I owned the car that he killed himself in and uh I was a grown-up right before my eyes I went from being 19 at university to being 40 within within a day so I didn't see what it said I read the letter 10 years later and it said Sherry Lynn you're a great kid you're a beautiful person you have a good heart Sorry, I left my shed such a mess that you're going to have to clean up. Then it also said, you guys are better off without me. You know, you're probably better off with any money you're going to get, et cetera, et cetera. I did not see that the first time because I was in a place of anger. 
However, the second time I read it, I saw how sad this man was and how he did not feel worthy of our love and that we would actually be better without him, which completely is not true. But when you're sick and your brain is sick, that's what you're thinking. You're not thinking rationally. You're thinking in a sick brain and, and, uh, and that's hard to understand, you know, in the first, for me, it was really hard to understand the first year or two. I was super angry. Angry was, you know, my mode of, of motivation. That's how I got things done. That's how I survived was in anger because I couldn't survive in sad and go to university and clean out his house and clean out his car and sell all those things and be a landlord. I couldn't do that in sad. I needed anger because anger can motivate me to keep going and do things and get things done. So I had a very different opinion of what suicide looked like. And, and then after I read that letter 10 years later, I, I realized how sad would that be to wake up every single day, feel worthless to feel like nobody loved you, to feel like, you know, even their love, you didn't deserve their love, the love that you did get. I thought, wow, this is, this must be a really sad place to live in. And, you know, I didn't blame him the same way I did year one and year two. It took growing. It took understanding for me. It took going through emotions, going to counseling, understanding suicide more, understanding mental illness more. And the more I grew and the more I understood, the more I, I went, Oh wow. That's really sad that he went through that. And then I felt for him. I felt, okay, he wasn't leaving me, which I thought, I thought, man, this guy is my dad. Why is he leaving me? He's supposed to protect me. He's supposed to be there for me. He's supposed to help guide me. And then I realized, Oh, right. His death wasn't even about me. It was about him just not having to live in sad all the time. So that to me was pretty eye-opening. The, the further I got away from losing him, the more I, I chose to understand. I chose to research. I chose to look into things and, and feel my way through grief to get to, to where I am today, 17 years later. So it's kind of an interesting journey. Another thing John and I always you know talk about in group, this is something I always bring up. Somebody had asked me this, and I didn't think about this. Initially, the question is, what percentage of you is still the same person as before you lost your loved one? And this was a pretty big aha moment in my brain. I'm like, wow, that's a, a mind-blowing question. What percentage of you is the same, John, do you think, before you lost that? Pretty much probably 15% of what I was before Zach is, is what I am now. Most of, most of everything that I rightfully or wrongfully, uh, the plans, the hopes, the dreams, the, the things that we had... Uh, you know, the, you know we, our, our goals, our, our board that we stick up on the wall uh, with benchmarks on it, um, that was pretty much wiped out. Uh, everything everything had changed. Uh, you know, retirement, post-retirement, you know, what we did, everything, uh, who we are, um, who we are as, uh, as a parent, who we are as, you know, a husband, as a father, uh, as a wife, pretty much all that changed in, in one way or another. And it wasn't evident at the beginning until you went to go do things where, you know, I'll do this and or try to get my mind off of things or I'll try. And, and everything you did, everything you tried to do, in some way, in some manner, that grief was able to stick its ugly head. And, and what I learned was is that this grief has an insatiable appetite. You can never feed it enough. It's always hungry and trickles in and creeps into every single 
part of your life. And that's part of learning how to cope with it because it, it, you can't turn your head anywhere and it doesn't make its way in, in one manner or another. But it's uh, life-changing is to say the least. That would be, that's an understatement. It, uh, it, it changes everything. It changes, changed me physically. The grief has worn me down in certain parts physically. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it's a pretty, it's pretty involved, to say the least. Thanks, John. So when I was asked this question, immediately I had an answer. It just popped in my head. I'm like, oh, 10%. I'm 10% of the same person I was before my dad died. And I was at a point in my life where, you know, you can go left or you could go right. I was in university. I had the world ahead of me. I could have chose to go, okay, I'm dropping out of school. He died in June. I'm take a couple years off, figure my stuff out. But my motivation was you got to keep going for me. That was what worked for me. I got to keep going. I planned his funeral. I planned everything, but I needed to be a doer to, for me to survive. I had to keep going. So I was 10% of who I was before. So I had to figure myself out. I was either going left or going right. I chose, I chose to go right. I chose to keep going. I chose to change or maybe I didn't even choose to change. I just did change. So people who were my friends who were going out and having a good time on Friday, Saturday night, I didn't do that anymore. I didn't go out with them. I didn't want to go to the university thing anymore. I instantly turned 40 in a heartbeat. I couldn't go back after you sell your dad's house. You're a landlord. You sell the car he dies in. You clean out everything of who this person was to you out of their place. And how do you go back to being 19 and 20? You don't. You just, you end up being 40 and you can't go back. So, I mean, I have a wonderful husband and I was dating him at the time. I got married at, at 22 because I was already 40. How about let's feel 22. And that felt people were like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're getting married so young. I'm like, but I'm not like emotionally and mentally. I'm not 22. I'm 40. So to me getting married at 22 made me actually feel in my twenties. It was, it was interesting, but my, my lens on life completely changed the way I viewed people who were dealing with mental illness changed the way I talked about, you know, my words around mental illness or how people died. I was very sensitive. You know, I lived with roommates my second year. I switched my roommate because she just was somebody who was hard to, to get along with. And I said, I'm going to work my life for me. This isn't a good place to live. I moved with a whole bunch of girls. I didn't know they were wonderful, but the things they would talk about, they'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to kill myself. Well, that's what, that's what like 20 year olds say and they don't know any better. And I just would look at them and they would look at me and go, Oh crap, I am so sorry. So what I've myself has changed when people say things like that, Oh my gosh, I'm going to kill myself. I'm like, don't say that. Like, that's not okay. I've made myself my whole life now is being an advocate for mental illness and standing up for people with mental illness. And because we don't know, we have no idea. It could be you next, John could be me, could be somebody else we love. We need to make sure we're spreading that word and getting the stigma away from it. So when people look at me and say, oh my gosh, I'm going to kill myself. I'm like, well, hold on. Let's have a conversation about that. Is that something you're saying or is that something you mean? So I'm always checking in with people seeing, are those words for real? Or maybe you shouldn't be saying that because that's not a funny joke. Yeah, that's that's true. A lot of things change. Uh, the, the sayings, the little... The triggers. The triggers are, are, are different now. They're new ones now that you didn't know 
bothered you before. And there's a lot of educating that has to be done. You're, you're, you're in the midst of this, this turmoil of, of grief and anger and, and every other emotion that you can't, you can't make out. And you're also trying to understand the people around you and, and educating them in that of what you need because you don't even know what you need yet. All you know is there's certain things that people say or people do that are, that are not helpful and they don't know. No, they don't. They don't know because right. they're, they're not, they haven't dealt with this before and it's frustrating. It, it's angering. It's hurtful. And, and you try to be as polite as possible to not educate them. Yeah. You know, to, that works. That doesn't work. That's not okay to say. That's great to say. And then we have a very short fuse when it comes to patience or, or anger. We, at this point in our lives, we're very, our, our, our patience is very limited and, uh, and we're using up all our energy to, to make it, to survive, to understand, to, to keep things together. So we, we don't have the patience that we once did. It, it will come back. It will, it will, it will come back. But at, at the, at the present moment, it's, it's easy to, to walk away and say, nah, I, no, that's not okay. And, uh, I gotta take care of me right now. And, and that's an important survival skill right now. And, and it absolutely is. And I learned to advocate, I had an amazing counselor, uh, Ironically, my dad knew I was stressed out about him and he set me up this appointment with this counselor and it was going to take two weeks to get into her. He knew I was stressed, didn't know what to do, set me up with this appointment and it was scheduled for a week after his death. So he already had set that up. I don't think that was his initial plan. He just wanted to help me out. That was just a, that was the day it was too much. And then that's what he, he had a plan waiting for the day that that day was going to be too much. Um, but this counselor was life-changing for me. I was taking sociology and communication studies in university. So I had this class September after my dad died. So not even two months. And I had to study suicide and the statistics around suicide and the statistics around men who die by suicide. But they didn't even say that. The book said commit suicide, which John and I are big advocates about talking about died by suicide instead of commit because we're adding stigma to that because he's not, they're not committing a murder. They're dying by suicide or dying of mental illness. So my counselor said, you're not studying that. You're not doing that. This is way too much for you. You just lost your dad and you're not going to read a book about him being a statistic. And I said, I can, I, I can stand up for myself. And she goes, yeah, you can, you can go and talk to, you know, that professor and say, can I have a different assignment? But I didn't know I was allowed to stand up for myself. I didn't have that guidance in my life. But I did have a wonderful counselor, which is why I we really promote going to talk to somebody who's going to give you strategies to help you. And I did go and stand up to him. And he wasn't really happy with me because I wasn't going to read his book that he wrote. And uh, I learned that day when he looked at me and he said, I think you're taking your situation and taking advantage of it to get it to work. And I said, no, actually, I said, I'll do another assignment. And he looked at me and said, yeah, I still think you're taking your situation and and taking advantage of the situation. And I looked at this man and it wasn't very nice, but at 19, I stood up and said to him, you know what? You might've wrote about suicide, but you bet you any money you've never lived through losing someone to suicide. So you can take your book. I told him he could shove it up his butt in different words. And I told him to go beep himself. So I stood up to him. He wasn't really happy with me. And then I walked down the hall to the Dean's office and I was pretty tough. And as soon as I saw the Dean, I started crying and I told him exactly what was happening. And that man helped me 
to get a different assignment and to make that professor understand that not everybody's life is going to be about a statistic in a book and somebody losing somebody to suicide does not need to sit and, and listen to that. So, I mean, not everyone's going to have this situation, but my point is learning how to navigate through loss and learning how you don't have to put up with things after you lose somebody. You can stand up for yourself is one of my main focuses and, and points when we go through this podcast is there is hope in the future and you can say what you, you need to say and say what you want to say. And you don't always have to feel isolated and put your head down. You can say what you need to say and that's okay. That's important. Yeah. You need to, you need to say to people what you need. They don't know. They think they know what you need, but you're the one that uh, is going to ultimately tell people what you need. And part of the journey is right now is you don't, you don't even know what you need. Exactly. You think you'll need this, but then you'll find out that, no, that's not what I need. And, and, and you'll be lost. And there's a, a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uh, sorrow. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of what's going on, disbelief. You pick something and it'll fit in there somewhere. So, but uh, it is doable. This, this work is doable. It's like I said, it's, I'll say it again and I'll probably say it every single episode. It's not easy. It's not easy, but nothing of any value usually is easy. No. Usually the biggest rewards come with the biggest sacrifices and the biggest efforts put into them. Your survival, you made it this far. We're just going to put miles can be covered with just one step at a time. And that's all we're asking is just one step at a time. Yeah, work it day by day, right? Not every day is going to be the same. Some days are going to be great. Some days not so great, and that's okay. But we're here just to give you hope. Hope to know that 38 months later, John's still surviving. 17 years later, I'm still surviving. Grief's always going to be there, but it's going to change. It's going to mold. It's going to alter, and that's okay. And remember, your grief is individual. You are individual. So everybody's grief is going to look a little bit different, and that's okay. Just remember that you know, how John grieves is different than how I grieve. Yeah, and just the difference between me and my wife, like, we, we grieve the same loss of the same child, but completely different because that child was different. We had a different relationship with each person. Yeah. You know, that you know, same loss of the child, different between him and his siblings. You know, I get you know, difference between me and my wife. We didn't love him any less. It's just, it's very complicated. It's a, it's a very complicated grief. And that's one of the big things, one of the big challenges is, how to understand when somebody's sharing the loss of someone is understanding the other person and, and what, what that loss is to them and to yourself. And, and it's, it's, again, it's a lot of work. Well, one thing that I always try to remember to tell people is, for example, if somebody comes into group and they've lost their girl, they lost their dad around the same age, I lost my dad at, I never, ever say to them, I understand. I never say I understand because guess what? Their relationship with their dad is completely different than the relationship I had with my dad, right? It, it's okay to go, you know, I feel for you. That's, I'm glad that you shared your story, but I will never say to somebody, I understand because to me it feels, no, you don't understand because you didn't have my dad. You had your dad mm -hmm. and that's okay because I just want to validate with them that their, their loss is equally as important as anybody else's. And I hear them. So something I might say is I hear what you're saying. I feel for you. 
thank you for sharing, but I never validate with, I understand because we all have our own individual selves and how we grieve and how you just said how your wife and you grieve differently and you both have different experiences with, with your son, Zach. So, so we're just going to close off here and say, thanks for listening. Um, we're glad that you came and listened. We hope, which is our, we hope you come and listen again. We hope you come and listen again. Okay. Next week. See you next week. Bye-bye.